KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for joining us as we start a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend. And uh, for those of you who were celebrating Mother's Day with mothers out there, I hope it was especially sweet for all of you. Uh, We have a lot to talk about, some breaking news that we'll get into in a couple of minutes. Uh, Let me introduce the panel right away. One of the people celebrating Mother's Day had to have been Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read her on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and she oversees the jolt. And I would imagine yesterday with your nine-year-olds, your two nine-year-olds, right? You must have had a sweet day. Yes, Patricia? Yes, it was wonderful, and I'm lucky enough that I live in town uh, with my parents and my sister. We don't live all in the same house, but we all get together, and we all had a great uh, Mother's Day at my sister's house, so it was couldn't have been better. Thank you. Oh, good for you. Well, you know, it's one thing to celebrate with twins, but as we've mentioned on this show before in introducing her, Tammy Greer, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University, celebrated with her triplets yesterday. Hi, Tammy. How are you? Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You had a good day with them, yes? I did. Sweet girls, always doing sweet things. Thank you. (laughs) Charles Bullock is back with us. Chuck Bullock is the Richard B. Russell uh, Chair of the Department of Political Science at uh, University of Georgia. Chuck, how are you today? Fine, yeah, I've got no multiple births in my family. I just just have two daughters, and they're grown. That's uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You and me both. My my kids are both grown ups as well. And Rick Dent, Rick Dent, we have to say this was a very special weekend for you in other ways as well. Your daughter got married this weekend, and those of us who follow you on Facebook saw beautiful pictures of you and your daughter. Dancing together, the father-daughter dance. It was really special to see, Rick. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. i, I got to tell you, it was a very emotional weekend. I did not expect to react like I did. <laughs> I get it. Well, that's, it was just great uh, to get to see some of those pictures. So, again, congratulations to you. Thank you. All right, let's get right to it. Patricia, um, we got a lot we want to talk about, but I do think it's worth mentioning there is a breaking news story uh, that I just saw, uh, and and you've probably seen it as well because you're featuring it on the AJC website. Um, here we are a couple weeks before the final day of voting on May 24th, and now Governor Kemp, after having won the Rivian deal, which is controversial among some people, but for many people it's a great uh, economic development uh, 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 biz- deal for the state. Now we're hearing news that uh, the parent company of Kia is planning on building, I think it's a Hyundai plant, or is looking at building, close to closing a deal to build a Hyundai plant down near Savannah, another 7,000-plus jobs. I got an email from someone on the Kemp 
uh, campaign team who said, we told you there was more interesting news coming, and I had a link uh, to the announcement. Patricia, what's the impact of something like that just a couple weeks while people are voting? Well, I think it is just another chance for Brian Kemp to further his message that he has kept the state's economy pretty much roaring uh, in some ways, um, even while there had been a global pandemic. And so if they're able to do a kind of a final announcement with Kia about this plant, um, it would be huge for that area. Right now, there is something called, it's called a mega site down in Bryan County. Mm -hmm. The state and Savannah officials have been trying to win a car factory um, or plant there for quite some time. And they have um, cleared the land brought in the pipes. They've got the electricity ready. All you you have to do is flip a switch. And so they've been trying to do this for a long time. Its proximity to the ports makes it a wonderful location for something like that. And so this would be kind of a crowning jewel for Brian Kemp um, to be able to announce this. So it's the type of news he wants to be pushing instead of talking about um, abortion instead of talking about other issues that may not play well for him in the general election. This kind of economic message works for Republicans, moderates, independents, whatever. So he's they will be thrilled to be able to, to push this news. Um, I think I'm correct that uh, uh, the other thing about the uh, this news is this is going to be an electric vehicle plant. So this is expanding on Georgia's commitment to electric vehicles, uh, uh, certainly the Rivian plant is electric. Uh, we have uh, one of the biggest uh, battery manufacturing plants for automobiles uh, locating in the state. So, so the the Kemp team can point to this as sort of uh, creating a whole new uh, front in the electric car, uh, electric vehicle uh, uh, world. So, uh, Chuck, the other interesting news we have is um, we're continuing to keep track of um, early voting. And Ryan Anderson, who runs the web- website Georgia Votes, is a great source for information. <clears throat> Ryan, just before we went on the air today, posted the latest numbers that he has, Chuck, on early voting. He has us at 180,620 people voting early. And he points out that that, that figure... Uh, in the 2018 primary, it was 53,000, almost 54,000 people. Turned out so far this year, 236% higher. Most of them, or, or a, a majority of them, are voting Republican, 57%, while 42% are taking Democratic ballots. Uh, what do you make of this uh, surge in turnout in that first week, Chuck? Well, it shows that there's a lot of interest, that people have been following the elections and want to Make sure they get their votes counted. It also shows that people perhaps are changing their behavior as a result of what they experienced in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to that point, uh, early voting was done mainly by Democrats, and Republicans were much more likely if they're going to vote early to get an absentee ballot. So you know, we, we saw that flip in 2020, and it looks like that's continuing, with Republicans now trekking to the polls, where in the past they would have waited to Election Day or maybe gotten an absentee ballot. Of course, Rick, there's also the question of whether it, the fact that we have two contested race, we have a contested race, certainly in the governor's uh, Republican primary. You've got uh, the uh, Purdue Kemp battle. And then you've got people who want to get out and vote, I assume, for Herschel Walker uh, when you've got all those other candidates in the field. Whereas uh, Stacey Abrams, Raphael Warnock are uncontested. The Democrats don't have quite as much incentive, Rick, to turn out 
for the primary uh, campaign. They, they don't. That's an excellent point. And it's, it's also important to remember, and I would certainly tell this to the Democrats, that there's really no correlation between what happens in May and what happens in November. So if you look at those numbers and all of a sudden, oh, my goodness, the Republicans outvoted the Democrats, you know, 58-42, it's more like what you just said. It's what's going on in those primaries uh, than anything else. Uh, but, Rick, let me ask you, since you've run campaigns, um, if you're representing a candidate, a Democrat on a down-ballot race, one of the ca- in contested down-ballot races, in the Secretary of State's race, in the Attorney General's race, do you worry about the lower turnout and how it could impact your race, even though you've got Abrams and Warnock safely uh, positioned at the top of the ballot? A- absolutely. The, the good thing that the lower ballot folks have this year, and this may be, again, because COVID changed so much about our election, the fact that Warnock and Abrams are spending so much money in primaries where they have no competition, that helps. That helps a great deal because usually the practice is you don't spend any money, you save it to the fall. Um, Tammy, one of the things that you focus on in your work is uh, is energizing uh, uh, voters in in looking at how uh, voters turn out uh, to to the polls, and it's a big concern of yours. Um, so these numbers are, I, I would think, very gratifying to you. They are um, to have so many in the first week of vote, early voting is fantastic because usually. Um, we don't talk about early voting at all. Uh, we're only focused on whatever the, the general election day is. And so to have a discussion that, yes, the general election or the last day of voting is, and, and yet you can start voting, you know, earlier on May 2nd, I think that that is very helpful um, to allow people the opportunity to know that there is time and space rather than feeling all uh, rushed to go to the ballot box and then think life happens and then someone forgets. So allowing folks to understand voting early um, is, is maybe the way to go uh, to ease the pressure as well as to engage people into their full citizenship, I think is very important. All right. Um, we're going to keep track of early voting numbers and we'll report them on the show as uh, it feels necessary to point out the, the surge if it continues. Uh, it'll also be interested to seeing if it we, we've got a couple. We've got two Saturday voting dates coming up. We've got Sunday voting coming up. So it's going to be interesting to see how those numbers grow ahead of the actual election day, May 24th. Um, all right, Patricia, let's turn to the Marjorie Taylor Greene story. Uh, we spent a lot of time certainly on this show uh, covering the the uh, court case in and which a uh, a group tried to have her removed from the ballot, saying that she was in in uh, in, in in effect one of the facilitators of the January sixth insurrection, and therefore in violation of a section of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, administrative court judge uh, Charles Baudot on on at, at the end of last week uh, said, "Nope." You made a valiant effort, uh, but the fact is you couldn't prove that she was somehow actively pushing the insurrection. And then I think I'm right 
that Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State who gets the final word, took that administrative ruling and said, I accept it, Marjorie Taylor Greene will remain on the ballot. All that said, this was always a long shot to begin with, right? This was always a long shot uh, to be able to prove, uh, first of all, that there was an insurrection, legally an insurrection, and that Marjorie Taylor Greene was a party to that in her time in Congress, which was just three days between the day she was sworn in and the day of the January 6th attack. Um, all Those legalities are still very much in play in federal courts all across the country, especially in Washington. And so um, the judge said, you have just not been able to make that case. You have not proven, A, that there was an insurrection, and B, that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, was a part of that and that see that this is the right venue to have that conversation. He especially seemed uh, bothered by the fact that the, his court, he did not feel like was the right uh, space for that determination to decide the legalities of that. Um, but the people who brought this case going in, their real goal all along was to have Marjorie Taylor Greene on the stand under oath testifying about January 6th. She did do that. She it took. She said um, over and over again, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. Um, many specifics she was asked about um, later uh, proved to be uh, things that she had been involved in in terms of text messages. But in terms of the exact testimony that she delivered on the stand under oath, um, she said she was surprised by the actual event, didn't plan it, was scared like everybody else didn't remember anything else. And um, that just wasn't enough for the judge to take her off the ballot while people are voting um, in her primary election right now. So, Tammy, I wonder if in the long run, while there was a lot of attention focused on on this case, and I certainly on this show uh, uh, promoted uh, it as an important political story, so I'm as guilty as anybody else. Um, but I wonder if in the long run, Tammy, uh, this doesn't uh, work to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's favor. She raised a lot of money off of this lawsuit. <clears throat> well, I think, of course, you can spin anything in the direction that you would like to spin it to. At the same time, for those that watched it, even for a little bit, to Patricia's point, to hear your representative, your elected representative, to be on the stand to say, I don't recall um, hundreds of times, um, as, as one count was. And then you had uh, information, you had actual facts and documentation um, that opposed that, that, that answer. I think it's important for us in the general public to know that. So, of course, you know, one could argue that she's going to raise a lot of money because now it's, she was uh, vilified in the media and by so-called left-wing blah, blah about her activities. And then the court said, no, it's fine. You know, she can continue. Um, so, of course, you can do both. Yet I still contend that the, uh, the more transparency that there are when it comes to people who have a taxpayer-funded paycheck, about their actions and their inactions and their responsibilities is still important regardless of the outcome. Chuck, what's your take on all this? Well, it, it helps her build her case of victimhood. That the left, especially the leftist media, is out there trying to make make her look bad and that she isn't bad, and then and it, and it riles up her supporters. We've talked about the money she raises. 
like even more concerning is that she it helps her become a symbol that others are going to emulate that she won't be alone that there are going to be other marjorie taylor greens or would-be marjorie taylor greens who are going to be using her as a model to try to get elected and of course the reason that she doesn't remember anything on the stand is as long as she doesn't remember it and says she doesn't she can't be guilty of perjury you know, Rick, I want to pick up on, I mean, you certainly weigh in on this any way you want to, Rick, but but I want to pick up on something that, that Chuck just said that I think is really important. Um, there's a lot of talk right now in some political circles about the fact that whether Donald Trump wins many of his races in which he's uh, uh, made endorsements or not, Trumpism, regardless of Trump himself, is really now an important factor for Republicans running for office out there. It, the whole philosophy of a Donald Trump, you know, uh, thumbing your nose at the mainstream media, making outrageous statements. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, doesn't have to talk about Donald Trump to be a Trumpy candidate, and there are a lot of other Republicans in that same boat these days. Uh, absolutely, and her voters know exactly why they support her and what they're getting. And when you read Patricia's story, I thought it was obvious <laughs> that they really, really, really like her up there. They do. Yeah, I want to, Patricia, you, oh, go ahead, Rick, finish your thought. Right. And, and again, I, I've got a different take because I come from it purely as a political animal. That, that lawsuit was stupid. There was no case. She, she, she testified like a mafia boss. I don't recall. What's your name? I, I don't recall. Um, and all, all it did was make her stronger. Liberals came in and made her stronger. And that's not what Democrats need. That's very funny. I do think her belligerence was something that her supporters just cheered on over and over again as she testified. And, and, and again, if you sense. read Patricia's story, the way she handled the media in that story, she knows exactly what she's doing. Well, thank you for setting that up, because Patricia, you spent the day. Uh, the last time you were on the show, actually, you did the show from your car. You were already positioned up in North Georgia, and you told us that you were up there because you were going to be spending an entire day following Marjorie Taylor Greene on the campaign trail. And your column came out. Uh, it was in the Sunday newspaper. Uh, it's online right now for people to go to AJC.com. They can read it. So you have to talk to us about what you learned during your very long day with Marjorie Taylor Greene? So I, I really wanted to go. I had never, to be honest with you, have never met Marjorie Taylor Greene, have not interviewed her before. And so I really wanted to see what she is actually like in person in her district. And does she have real support in her district? Is it manufactured? Um, just who is this person who has become really a national lightning rod and a hero to some. Um, and so that was my goal for the day. And I went up and was just really, um, really amazed at what I saw in terms of Green um, with her own constituents. Really, I told uh, somebody after the trip, the two temperatures for Marjorie Taylor Green are warm, extremely warm with her constituents and napalm, like nuclear, against reporters who ask her questions that she doesn't like. 
and her supporters are with her every step of the way on all of that. Now, not all of her, not everybody in uh, 14th district is a supporter. And we did have a constituent come up to her and say, you are an absolute embarrassment to this district. And I have just voted for a Democrat for the first time in my life because of you. Um, but she had many more supporters come up to her. She's never met. They've never met her. One woman started weeping when she met Green because she felt like she identified with her so much. And Marjorie Taylor Green was fighting for her in a way that nobody else had. And it reminded me a lot of covering Donald Trump in a way that people feel like, except she was not a celebrity going into this. And that's what's sort of amazing. There, there are uh, voters there who feel like she speaks for them and nobody else ever has. And they have this personal uh, devotion to her um, in a way that, and she, the, I guess my other point is that she is really totally in control of all of her tools as a politician. She was very warm and welcoming. At the same time, she could just flip on a switch on reporters if they're asking questions she doesn't like. And it was almost kind of performance art for her supporters who were just with her every step of the way. And um, she was fighting with one reporter in particular, going back and forth, back and forth. And he ended up sort of cutting off the questioning. She could have gone forever, you know, and it was working for her. And she would ask her supporters, what do you guys think? And they're like, yeah, we love you, Marjorie. You know, so it was just, it was just absolutely fascinating. Um, and I, it left me with the impression we will, we will have Marjorie Taylor Greene with us for some time. And what capacity, we don't know, but she has this appeal for certain voters that is not going to be left wasted on the side of the road. She, she'll be with us doing something for quite some time. So, uh, Patricia, I, it, the interaction between some of you, I know there was one TV reporter who was confrontational, and that got, as you just pointed out, uh, got kind of angry and nasty. But, um, but her demeanor, apparently, with uh, the, the press corps that followed her, she treated you with poli- She was polite, right? She um, uh, uh, answered other kinds of questions uh, pretty accommodatingly, uh, whether we like the answer she gave or not. In my case, it reminds me of the days of covering Newt Gingrich, when Gingrich would rail about the media as his enemies, but you'd do an interview with him, you'd go out on the road with him, and he treated you with all the respect you would expect from a candidate who wasn't attacking the media all the time. Is she similar to that? Very similar, very similar. Certainly was skeptical of the entire idea. It was her press guy who convinced her to do this. Um, But she gaggled with us, meaning she held sort of a back and forth with press for an hour between stops with cameras rolling. She had multiple press conferences. She had lunch with the reporters. She asked where the uh, TV news reporter she'd had this big fight with. She said, where did did Rick go? I thought we were going to have lunch with Rick, you know. Um, And again, Donald Trump is very much like that with reporters, face-to-face, very friendly, but when it serves his purposes, you know, we'll just light into the, quote, fake news um, when he's not also giving them information and interviews. So it's a real sort of performance art, I guess, in modern politics. And that's um, she's very skilled at it. Just the word I was thinking of, performative. There's a performative nature to the way in which people like that talk about the media. Chuck, is there any reason to believe that Marjorie Taylor Greene is not going to win uh, the 14th district again? No way she's not going to win it. 
you know, this uh, what she's doing. You know, there is a long, long history. You mentioned Newt Gingrich. You go back 80 years, and again, Gene Talmadge made a whole career of doing the same kind of thing, of cussing them lying oh. Atlanta newspapers. And, <laughs> and it played real well out in the countryside, you know. And, and she doesn't have any red suspenders to snap, I don't think. But you know, she is t- taking a lesson that goes back well in time. Again, how do you make headway you know, by cussing the Atlanta press? And then you know, that fires up your supporters. And they're willing to overlook an awful lot of uh, missteps on your part. Tammy? <laughs> so it's um, utterly fantastic. As we're having this conversation, I keep going back to um, the Netflix documentary, Get Me Roger Stone, because a lot of these elements are like highly noted um, in, in that film where, you know, you, you want to do both. You want to be warm to the people that will vote for you, hopefully. And then you show, as, as has been noted, you know, to be a victim on the other hand, uh, to get the people warm on your side to continue to vote for you. Um, so as, so I, I find it interesting. I also find it um I would ask the the woman who went up to Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, you know, I feel like she's the one fighting for me to I, I to know specifically what is that thing that she's fighting for though? Like what is it? Is it what policies is she really fighting for or is it just the nature of being aggressive and um being, you know, pushing back and 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 so forth that is the fight that one can relate to. So it's very interesting to me of uh, this dynamic. Rick Dent, I got to get to a break, but as I'm, as I'm t- listening to all of you, I just realized something. I don't think I gave you a proper introduction at the start of the show. The uh, and the reason I thought about What? I didn't my intru- daughter's wedding was enough. But I should also say that, of course, you worked as Zell Miller's press secretary when when Zell was governor of Georgia. And before we take a break, we should point out that nobody uh, could be as tough on reporters as Zell at times. He had a wicked uh, ability to snap at people like uh, me. But on the other hand, we never thought for a minute that he didn't, in fact, respect what we did. Oh, no, he, he loved you on one level. He understood the job, but he enjoyed beating the crap out of you. And there were press, com- there were press conferences that I actually tried to stop. And he would look at me and go, no. <laughs> All right, we have a lot more to talk about on the show today. Patricia, I just loved reading your column about Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I would really encourage uh, our listeners to go find it. Let's post a, a link to it, okay, uh, Natalie and Sam, uh, so people can can see it themselves. we got a lot more to talk about. We'll do that when we come back on Political Rewind. Clark Atlanta's Tammy Greer, University of Georgia's Charles Bullock, uh, Patricia Murphy from the AJC, and Rick Dent, Vice President of Matrix Communications, which does government relations work and some uh, campaign work, and is really our expert on looking at campaign spending and advertising, which we're going to talk about in a little while. I'll join us for our show today. Um, Patricia, uh, we have finally, we've now seen our first poll taken completely after the document was leaked, the opinion written by uh, Justice Alito, which would overturn Roe. Uh, Yahoo 
News um, and uh, YouGov were in the field from May 3rd to May 6th. They talked to 1,577 people. Um, They talked to registered voters, not likely voters, and that's an important distinction, obviously. Uh, But here's what they found, that um, if you ask people in the generic ballot, would you rather uh, have a Democrat or a Republican uh, serve you in Congress, they preferred the the generic Democrat 44% over the generic Republican 39%, five percentage point difference. But, Patricia... When they asked, would you choose between, how would you feel about a pro-choice Democrat or a pro-life Republican, GOP support fell to 31%, while the Democratic support stayed uh, the same. So there was all of a sudden a 13-point gap. It's one poll. Again, it's registered, not likely voters. What should we make of it? So I think that... um a lot will depend on what actually happens with the Supreme Court, and we should know that as soon as June. Um, however, I do think that there, this is a, um, a, a potentially advantageous time for Democrats and potentially dangerous time for Republicans in that this introduces an unexpected conversation into an otherwise extremely positive environment for Republicans in this midterm elections. Um, uh, Republicans felt like they, ha- they had an enormous amount of momentum. But that poll echoes a finding that the AJC found, um, and this was back in January, the AJC polled on um, a question of Georgia likely voters, specifically, should Roe v. Wade be overturned? And 73% of Georgia voters said no. Um, I'm sorry, 63% of Georgia voters said no. 73% of women voters said no. Um, And even 44% of Republicans said no. Um, This is an area that was assumed to be settled law. And we have an entire generation of female voters for whom it has never occurred to them that they could actually lose the right to um, access an abortion. Not that they want to, but if they needed to, they would have the right to. And so um, I think that voters are going to spend some time getting their head around this, but I think it's a situation that um, in in an electoral situation gives Democrats an opening to say, wait a minute, let's Let's talk about what it means to elect a Republican to the U.S. Senate and to governor under these new dynamics. What does that look like? And so um, I think it's a it's a, a monumental event uh, mm. heading into 2022. Chuck, it's possible that Republicans could overplay their hands if they're not careful on this. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. Right. I mean, Republicans is. is uh, so she said, you know, this uh, everything looks like it's going to be a good year. It's a midterm election with a Democrat in the White House. Uh, and what Republicans really would like to talk about would be inflation, gas and groceries, and maybe immigrants. Uh, and so to the extent that this moves the conversation away from that, now, who might this pick up for, for Democrats? Well, critical for Democrats in this state is the white college-educated voter. Uh, and... You know, to the extent that they think about it, maybe particularly the mothers, they think about, well, what if my, what if my daughter somehow uh, got pregnant with, you know, and she's getting ready to go to college? Would, would I want her to have to carry that child term? So I think this could really work well potentially for Democrats with the critical swing voters 
as well as getting the conversation moving in a direction that's going to help Democrats. And we see some Republicans, uh, people like uh, Mitch McConnell, you know, have not jumped up and down and applauded this, this decision. So I think some Republicans who, you know, they can, <laughs> as Mitch McConnell said, the main thing you need to be a successful party leader is to get to the third grade where you can learn to count. And so, you know, Republicans who can count and do do numbers are saying, yeah, we see these same polls, like the one that uh, you mentioned earlier, Bill, the one Patricia mentioned, which was done here in Georgia. And, you know, even among Republicans, it's kind of a split. And once you get to independents, they're overwhelmingly in favor of maintaining Roe. And again, that's who you play for. Tammy? So I think it's interesting because when we think about, um, number one, uh, to the Mitch McConnell uh comment that Chuck just made. Um, so you can't advocate for um, and move policy toward um, and uh, advocate for federal judges and so forth who have ultimately wanted this outcome and then all of a sudden are quiet about it, because this has been a mission for the past um, five decades. Uh, number two, uh, I would like for us to consider um, revisiting how we're looking at Roe is because it's more than and if the decision or if the line of thought from uh, the draft uh, decision is it held mostly to be to be true, then it's not just having access to an abortion. It is women's bodily autonomy, period, because we had um, so many bills that go through so many different state legislatures that are talking about personhood. So at conception, um, then an embryo is a person and then thus have, you know, potentially more constitutional ability than the actual living and breathing person on their own. So I think that we really have to pay attention to the wording of the decision that comes out and then how folks are will be able to maneuver themselves into redefining women's bodily autonomy up to and including contraception. Um, and having an embryo to be known as a fetus, I mean, as a person um, inside of, of this country. We have to be very careful with this language. Rick? You know, this panel is so much more polite than I am. I would tell the Democrat, get all in, number one. And I'm not sure that they are brave enough to do it. Number two, they need to ask every Republican on the ballot would you make a 12-year-old rape victim carry that pregnancy to term? Will you put women in jail? Will you put doctors in prison? Every Republican should be faced with those questions. At the same time, if I'm advising Republicans, I would say, like they're trying to do, don't go to extremes. Uh, this is not a time for jubilation. Uh, Tell your base to take it easy because you do not want to scare suburban women voters. And remember, in Georgia, we're not talking about four or five point swings that will win an election here. We are right down the middle. We're talking inches. And we already know in prior elections, Republicans were leaking votes with white women in Atlanta suburbs. And that's going to be a problem for them if they're not careful. You know, Rick, I, you're, you're giving the argument that Gavin Newsom made the other day, the governor of California, when he stood up at a news conference and said, where are the Democrats on this? Why aren't they fighting? 
And, and it's a question that goes way beyond just this draft opinion. It goes to how Democrats seem to be unwilling, in many cases, to really get tough and fight as hard as Republicans have always done, or, or certainly yeah. in the last decades have done. And, and there's always this question about why. Why? They're more policy-generated instead of politics. They, they, they don't like to be uh, bare knuckles. They were in the 90s. James Carville made them that mm. way. And you know James, and James will tell you right yep. now, nobody is afraid of Democrats anymore. And until they're willing to do that as a party, they're going to continue to lose. I think that... Um uh, if you hear the messages that Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock have put out since then, they have been relatively unequivocal. Uh, Stacey Abrams, mm-hmm. Warnock has called himself, you know, within minutes, I'm a pro-life, I'm, excuse me, I'm a pro-choice pastor. And those terms are not contradictory. Stacey Abrams was speaking to um, the human rights campaign over the weekend and spoke about this. And uh talked about it in um, extremely unequivocal terms, that uh, this is a fundamental right, that she as governor will protect it as a fundamental right. Um, Jen Jordan, who's running for attorney general, has said that if she were attorney general, she would file suit to uh, reinstate the right to abortion if it's eliminated um, under existing Georgia privacy laws that date back to the early 1900s. And so um, individually, uh, certainly at the state level, we are seeing these um, very uh, quick, specific, um, broad defenses of a woman's right to um, access abortion. At the same time, on the Republican side, while Governor Kemp has been more circumspect and focused more on the leak at the Supreme Court rather than the uh, text of the leak at the Supreme Court, um, David Perdue all of the Senate candidates running against Herschel Walker um, have said we would envision a total ban on abortions. That would be rape, incest, life of the mother, fatal fetal abnormalities, not important, total ban on abortions. And Herschel Walker has um, not, we've not heard a lot of specifics for him because he was not on the debate stage, but um, he has talked, um, obviously, that he would challenge Warnock specifically on um, being a pro-choice pastor. So um, I think we're going to hear about this over and over from from both sides. Well, I, I think that's right. I think it, I, I've said on the show since last Monday when the, the opinion leaked that uh, this plays right into Stacey Abrams' campaign, you know, uh, access to health care uh, for all Georgians and certainly uh, <laughs> the ability to have an abortion if a woman feels it's necessary is a big part of that. But um, And also we should point out, Patricia, that Stacey Abrams uh, put her money where her mouth is. She stopped fundraising for her own campaign and turn to helping uh, pro-choice organizations raise uh, money to uh, fight against whatever may be coming down from the Supreme Court. So I'm really happy that you uh, pointed that out. Uh, Let's get to our our next break. We're going to have a lot of time to talk about this issue in the weeks ahead. And while we have Rick Dent here, I always like to uh, take a look at what's happening with campaign spending, especially in the top races on the ballot. We'll do that when we come back on Political Rewind. I got to say, I'm really looking forward to tomorrow's show. Tomorrow, we are going to have a conversation with Cynthia 
Tucker, Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for many years, one of my personal journalistic heroes during her years at the AJC. She's written, co-written a new book called The Southernization of America, in which she talks about the fact that what we used to think of as the culture and the politics of the South have now been exported to the entire country. And it's a fascinating uh, perspective, and I can't wait uh, to talk to uh, Cynthia. So that's tomorrow on Political Rewind. Tamar Hellerman from the AJC will be with me for that conversation. All right, Rick Dent, uh, let's talk a little bit about spending, which continues to be uh, extraordinary. Um, it, 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 so we're going to talk about the governor's race and the U.S. Senate race. Uh, what's going on with the governor's race in terms of Purdue, Kemp, and Abrams? Well, the there are two trends that continue. Um, number one, Governor Kemp continues to hit Purdue, which is very telling. It means, number one, he's trying to avoid a runoff, I think, uh, get this thing over with. But the good news for Democrats is, you know, he's calling him a Washington failure. And what that means is it, it becomes even harder after the election to come together as a team and hold your hands up and say, hey, we love each other, especially after those debates, if anybody saw those debates. The uh, second trend that is continuing is Stacey Abrams is spending a hell of a lot of money promoting herself in a primary where she has no opponent. And it's affecting yeah. the Republican race because Kemp, his strategy is he can't let her just zoom away and so if you look at the advertising on the Republican side, you have Kemp attacking Purdue. You have the RGA, the Republican Governors Association, attacking shutdown Stacey. So uh, I want to listen uh, to an ad that uh, you, you described already, Kemp continuing to hit at uh, Purdue. Here's the audio of a commercial that just do, does just that and refers to the Washington uh, Republicans. Uh, let's listen now. Insider David Perdue voted with liberals for trillions in new debt. His out-of-control federal spending is driving inflation through the roof. In Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp has balanced the state budget every year. He suspended the gas tax to help with prices at the pump and delivered historic income tax cuts. Washington failure David Perdue called these tax cuts disgusting. Governor Brian Kemp gets things done, and he'll beat Stacey Abrams again. Oh, my goodness. There you go. Brian Kemp says, blame it all on those Republicans in Washington. Tammy? <laughs> so I um, I did homework uh, when I saw this, this, this ad. So uh, let's be clear that in 2017, um, uh, under the Trump administration, with Paul Ryan as Speaker of the House and Mitch McConnell as Majority Leader in the Senate, passed uh, those tax cuts, right, with a majority vote of Republicans. So these, I wouldn't call Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell liberals um, that David <laughs> Perdue worked, voted with, but that, you know. And then from the CARES Act that was just passed, Georgia benefited from this act, um, being that uh, about $10 billion was allocated to states, territories, and, and native sovereign land. And uh, Sonny, David Perdue voted no on that. So all of the monies that came to the state under the CARES Act, David Perdue voted no on it. Every single Republican in the Senate voted no. So it's very interesting to me how, 
you know, I'm not sure where the liberals were that David Perdue <laughs> voted with, um, but it's sure enough, um, especially this last round of money, is that Georgia benefited from, that Georgia families benefited from, David Perdue voted no on. Chuck? Yeah, uh, this probably is the first time in his entire life David Perdue has been called a liberal. Uh, and it's part of the problem <laughs> of, of having the governor. Now, again, we used to see back in those days when Democrats dominated Georgia politics, Republicans would come in and regularly vote against the state budget. Well, you can do that when you're not responsible for governing. When you're governing, you sometimes have to vote for programs. You have to help fund them. You may not like it. And, of course, our funding bills are huge things. You can't go through and just cherry-pick out, well, I like this program and that program. You've got to take the whole, whole wad. So, but I think it's probably a very effective ad. I don't doubt that it is. Uh, and also the linking of him to being part of D.C., well, yeah, that's, that's always a good strategy to cuss those folks up in D.C. who are doing bad things that you don't like. So you know, the Kemp people have got some, some very good advertising. And, and on a side note, one of the things that surprised me, I believe Purdue has hired the same ad group that did the Kemp ads four years ago. And those are very, very effective. And I'm surprised that he has not been able to come back with something which would be more effective on his side. He doesn't have a whole lot of money, does he, Patricia? He does not have a whole lot of money. He has not managed to raise, um, I think, really even a tenth of what Brian Kemp has at his disposal, let alone Brian Kemp's access to the Republican Governors Association and all kinds of other outside money. Um, but I think the reason this is an especially effective ad is that it's undercutting David Perdue with the messages he's trying to use against Brian Kemp. Um, in this campaign, David Perdue is calling himself an outsider, the original outsider. And when you call him a failed Washington insider, then you can't be both at the same time. And he has been in the Senate for a full six years before he lost his election. Um, and he was a part of this uh, absolute runaway um, increase in the federal debt. And when you go back and look at uh, David Perdue's original 2014 campaign, his single issue was to bring down the national debt. And so you have to ask um, in this ad, and it certainly does, where were you when the when the um, uh, national debt was going up by trillions? And of course, he was there voting. And so um, this is uh, trying to hit Purdue with his own words. Purdue is trying to attack Kemp for being um, a poor manager of state funds, of giving away billions to Rivian and um, giving away uh, taxpayer giveaways before Election Day. So on this economic message itself, this is sort of an apples to apples um, uh, comparison and cut down from the Kemp campaign that I think is effective. Uh, Rick, uh, there's something uh, that uh, the Abrams people and the Warnock people have in common. They have the luxury of doing positive spots right now, since neither of them is facing any opposition. They can define themselves. Let's listen to the audio of one of the two spots that you sent, sent to us that Abrams has on the air right now. There are thousands of us who work in the Georgia film industry. First camera assistant. I'm an actor. Makeup artist. And it's all because of Stacey Abrams. Because of Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams. Welcome to set, Stacey. She helped pass the law, making sure that the tax credit stayed and made sure that the industry stayed. Jobs that the governor almost drove away. It was Stacey who got everyone together and got the film industry to stay right here in Georgia. Stacey Abrams saved my job. My job. My job. Thanks for fighting so hard for us, Stacey. Action. 
uh, Rick Dent, uh, I'm not sure I understand the province of that. I mean, wh- how, where was what was Abrams' role? I mean, this was the Republicans who had the majority in in the legislature who will uh, pass these huge tax breaks that brought the film industry here. What's the basis for her argument on this? I think number one, your role is whatever you say it is if you have the money. Uh, Number two, I think she's probably alluding to the voting rights problem here, and Hollywood was going to try to withdraw, and she told them, please, stay put. Oh, Oh, okay, that makes sense. Now, I'm going to make a, uh, I don't know if this is a prediction, and I have no inside information whatsoever, but if you look at the way Warnock and Abrams are raising money, I think there's a chance they're never going off of television. And that would be unprecedented in Georgia history. You know what? Uh, let's talk about that very quickly because we run out of time. Staying on the air, Patricia, is crucial. You, we, we have seen political campaigns in the past, and, and you've been around for them. Rick, you have as well, where a campaign goes down at a certain point and suddenly their numbers go south. When they come back, they have a hard time regaining that momentum. If it's possible for candidates to stay out all the way through November, that is a very important um, aspect of the campaign. I remember seeing my first Raphael Warnock reelect ad um, when we were on vacation for New Year's. I mean, he has been up since January in the Atlanta media market, which is the most expensive. And these were primetime ads absolutely glowing and we all know what kind of a head start Raphael Warnock got in his last election when he was able to do his puppy ads and his Christmas tree ads while everybody else was fighting amongst themselves so I think they're looking to replicate that success and he's definitely got the money to do it. Rick Dent, it may have been Guy Milner, the Republican candidate who went down at the wrong time after winning a primary and uh, ended up getting beaten in the general because of it. And, and you know what? It used to be a, tra- a traditional approach. You had your primaries in the spring, and then you took the summer off to raise more money. But not anymore. Not anymore. We are s- completely out of time. Uh, again, this is one of the days I would like the additional hour NPR. Just turn it back to us, because Patricia Murphy, Rick Tent, <laughs> Tammy Greer, and Charles Bullock uh, have so much more Uh, that they could offer us about what's happening right now in Georgia politics. But we are going to step aside uh, and come back on tomorrow's show again. Cynthia Tucker, Pulitzer Prize winning former columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, now living back in home in Alabama, will be with us to talk about her new book. So thank you all for being with us today. Really enjoyed this conversation. I'll see you all tomorrow. And in the meantime, please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.